the rubo. The following is a quote from Anton's nighttime journal. The entry was made shortly after he'd gone to bed on Tuesday the 17th of February, 2019. The words that occur to us in the ordinary course of events lead mostly to something we already know. Our comprehension of events is predictable insofar as we are seldom conveyed to any new or stimulating discovery through the use of language. Whatever is spoken about or written down must be conveyed in a series of words capable of being understood in the first place. Because of this preloading of the languages we communicate in, there can never be a true catalyst for the restructuring of reality unless they are accompanied by unusual and penetrating frequencies. In Anton's world, Tuesday the 17th of February would turn out to be an eventful and exhausting day. He'd started earlier than usual in his favorite cafe. After that, he'd gone to the university library, and then on a whim to Urania's office, which I will come back to very shortly. Let's picture Anton in his usual spot that day. By now it's early evening. Despite the shocks he'd had, he was writing with a degree of confidence and felt buoyed by the new passage he was adding to chapter five. This is the chapter where I was humming a familiar tune. As Anton typed, the fruity tones of my voice filtered through. To abate his edginess, Otto started humming as he walked. It was a tune he knew backwards, but could never remember the words to. His humming became more vocal. He kicked at piles of snow, producing nonsensical noises to the melody of my favorite things. Although Urania hadn't revealed to him where I was going or where I might end up, Anton believed he was gaining control over the writing. This runaway feeling of having control elated him. He couldn't stop grinning. To counter it, he told himself he was eminently rational. His erudition, along with the pursuit of an unassuming and happily married life, had provided him with a balanced perspective. Below the surface, what lurked in Anton's mind was a range of curious beliefs. As we know, he wasn't simply writing a novel anymore. He was living in it. He fancied that his fate was in the hands of a Greek goddess. He believed that Urania had shown him a means of accessing a more complete reality to write in. More than ever, he was convinced she was preparing him for a quest to find out how his book about me ended. The more conspicuous his beliefs became, the more certain you could be that he didn't reveal them to anyone, not even his wife not even after his muse had taught him how to whisk his perceptions into such a froth that he could be delivered to the entrance of a cave high in the mountains without ever leaving the cafe he was riding in. Nor was he prepared to disclose to anyone, medically trained or otherwise, 
that he'd elected to proceed on the basis that his cave was the hideaway of an ancient philosopher from Ephesus, who would one day be his future reader. That said, because he was an eminently rational man, Anton had resolved that in the event of his disappearance, there should be a surviving record of his journey to the unseen, which is where his journal came in. Most readers would have to regard these kinds of beliefs as dangerously fanciful. Most would just as soon place them in a mental health context. One might think of Anton as a person afflicted by a form of dementia that made his fantasies seem overly real. In a word, one might consider him delusional. It's only fair to point out, however, that his immersions were founded in the methodical and consistent approach of an experienced writer. They were constructed out of a broad vocabulary and generally communicated in a coherent way. This basis in language tended to endow the writer's most eccentric claims with a degree of authority, which was more than half the battle. Like many, I too would blithely have argued that Anton's subconscious mind was directing it all, so much so that he actually came to believe the gobble he was writing. Even when the words he wrote undermined commonly held assumptions about the nature of reality. I too would have suggested that the ideas that occurred to him whenever he sat down to draft another passage of Otto in Flames went on to stimulate a fantastical sub-narrative which ended up taking over his life. Most would assume this kind of explanation and leave it at that. It defers to a conventional account of Anton's experiences and doesn't require the intervention of a superior being by the name of Urania. Yet, this conventional account is just one of a range. In the awkward sense that everything that happens is true, even if it is held by most to be false, everything that Anton perceived was real. Especially when he saw it in the unseen. I speak with the benefit of hindsight when I tell you that not only was his muse as present as an earthquake, but the Latin American priest I ran into, calling himself Vinctus Promentano, would turn out to be even more overbearing. You will recall it had been Anton's intention that afternoon to visit Urania so that he might acquire the best possible map of the Unseen. The plan was straightforward. He would go to her office and either meet with her straight away or make an appointment. On leaving the university library, it took him all of twelve minutes, trudging through the snow, to return to the elegant building next to his bank where her office had been. To his consternation, however, the brass plate with Urania's name on it had been removed. Instead, there was a white oval sign over the door, like a shield on its side, displaying the red cross of St. George. The sign informed callers that they had the honor of being at the doorstep of the Consulate General of Georgia. Anton rang the doorbell. He might have tried testing for signs of self-consciousness, but it hadn't occurred to him yet that reality was being subtly undermined. The door buzzed open, permitting him to enter. He stamped his boots and shook a few flakes of snow off his coat. He removed his gloves. Somebody in the queue nudged him. 
he mumbled an apology. Other than the door he'd just come through, there were no entrances or exits in the circular hall. The sound of his stamping boots echoed around him. They turned into a humming sound. Its frequencies made his chest vibrate. Although Anton was sure he'd just been jostled, when he looked around, there wasn't anyone else in the hall. Slipping on his spectacles, he made his way into the gloom. Intricately symmetrical patterns laid out in the floor tiles stimulated his curiosity. At the far end of the hall, spiraling gracefully to the first floor, was an iron staircase. Despite the fact that he wasn't in the offices of Urania and Co., he made his way up the steps. Just as he was coming back on himself, on the first turn of the spiral, he was startled by someone shouting to his right. So bad. The faraway voice had come from a painting on the wall. He leaned over the banister. The painting was of a rider galloping along a narrow ridge somewhere high in the mountains. To the rider's right was a steep canyon. For reasons that will become apparent in good time, the subject of this painting was sufficient to shock Anton out of any complacency he might have been feeling. He leaned as far over the banister as he could. The painting was by an artist called France Roubaud. The artist's first initial and surname were daubed along the bottom of the canvas. The year was 1882. The rider in the painting was armed with a musket. It was slung over his back. He was protected from the elements by overlapping layers of fur and wore a large papaka, which Anton knew to be the favored headwear for any kind of outing in the Caucasus. Yet this lone rider was in no position to enjoy the scenery. His white steed had just been startled. He was swinging around in the saddle, tugging at the reins, trying to steady his mount. Something or someone off to his right had startled the horse. Anton was so keen to get a better look, he leaned even further over. But whatever it was that had spooked the horse had been left to the imagination by the artist. Anton was sure he'd heard someone shouting. So anxious was he to discover what was happening outside the frame of Rubo's painting that he finally lost his balance. The fall would have killed him. It was only narrowly avoided by the involuntary shift of his weight, which toppled him back onto the step. He brushed himself down. Still shocked and unable to fathom what had happened, he continued up the spiral. The woman at the desk wore glasses. She had a laptop open in front of her. Despite the heaviness of the rims of her glasses, her eyebrows were thick enough to dominate them. As he approached, Anton nodded pleasantly. It had never been easy for him to produce any kind of winning expression from behind his beard, but he believed he was probably smiling. The woman continued to stare at him without any commitment, as an ostrich might. Her pursed lips glinted in the scarlet hue she'd chosen that morning. Her eyebrows hovered menacingly, from behind her heavy-rimmed glasses, a pair of large black orbs blinked in unison. 
As an accompaniment to her ocular disdain, the woman managed to be impolite when she finally inquired into Anton's business. He'd meant to say, I'm here to see my muse. What he actually said was, I'd like to withdraw 30,000 euros. Reinforcing the rule that functionaries must at all times be mildly offensive, the woman scoffed. It was an unpleasant, cupped sound, which might well have been produced from behind a bird's beak. It was not unlike a pop, but the resonance around it was much thicker. Anton could feel the vibrations all the way up to his temples. Behind the woman was a double door. From behind the door came a double murmur of voices. What Anton overheard was the kind of conversation maniacs have when they gather in small groups. The tone was casual. One of them was saying, Why not end his life? Although this one was the philosopher Heraclitus, speaking in an ancient dialect of Greek, Anton found he could understand every word. The other voice laughed and replied in a different ancient language, which Anton understood as well. <laughs> that would be to unmake everything that has already been made, the other voice said. The portly man who had uttered these words appeared in the double doorway. He wore a cassock and had that special kind of gravity which can only be trained into people from an early age. In Anton's vision of him, Father Promontano's complexion was even more parked than when I had encountered him. Anton was about to introduce himself when the functionary twisted her neck around. This visitor has neglected to make an appointment she said. Promontano seemed not to mind. In what was intended to be a welcoming gesture, he lifted his right hand and turned it upwards. The metallic band on his middle finger was so large and bright that Anton had to gape at it. They were in a room that was implausibly high-ceilinged. Looking up, the writer couldn't see where the room ended. He didn't remember having gone in. He could hear a sad murmuring all around him. The room had a patterned red carpet. The fractal emanations within the carpet seemed to pour outwards. It was a geometrical wonder of squares within squares. There were no windows. There wasn't even a door. From the floor to a great height, all four walls were lined with books. Books upon books. It seemed there was enough reading material in the room for a long and lonely life. All the books were bound in different colored leathers. The murmuring in the room came directly from the books. When he put his ears up close, Anton could hear the combination of sounds each of the books made in accordance with what they were about. Most of the sounds were miserable, but above the groaning and plaintive sighs, he could make out a few cries of joy. His limbs were shaking. He needed somewhere to sit. There were no chairs. He felt it would be improper to slump to the carpet. The priest had his back to him and was gesticulating. What he was saying was all but drowned by the many downhearted sounds in the room. Promontano was inquiring after the muse, Urania. To be able to hear better, Anton took a step closer. It was remarkable that Promontano should know about his muse, he thought. The priest turned around then, 
and said he was in a position to disclose what happens at the end of Otto and Flames, but only if Anton told him where Urania was. As far as Anton was concerned, his future reader was the philosopher Heraclitus. No matter how hard he tried, he wasn't able to associate Heraclitus in any way with a South American priest. In order to establish his credentials, Bramantano pulled a slim volume down from one of the lower shelves. This one sounded especially miserable. It was the howl of elation at the end of the book that caused both the writer and the priest to smile. Promontano flipped to the middle and held it open for Anton to see what was written there. Peering over the rims of his spectacles, he saw a few interesting sentences. The veil of perfection had fallen to the floor. It was lying at Otto's feet. Although he was impressed and thought he might use the idea in chapter 5, Anton looked up and said he was sorry, but he had no idea where Urania was. She seemed to come and go as she pleased. Before he could read the next sentence in his book, the ring on Promontano's finger cracked open. It fell apart in a swirl of glittering light. The priest fell apart as well. There was blood on his cassock now. As soon as the blood came into contact with the air, the cassock smoldered. Promontano didn't seem too put out. His face had become more flat. The book in his hand caught fire. He was still holding it up for Anton to see, but the burning pages began to drift out of their binding. Scorched pieces floated by, shouting unintelligibly. Anton tried his best, but he didn't have time to gather all the shouting paper back together. The fire was beginning to spread. As the priest's head dropped to the carpet, a presence leaked out of his torso. It had long branches and star-shaped leaves. It too was burning. It made stretching sounds as it grew out of the immolating priest. The branches reached in every direction, spreading the fire to all the books in the room. The heat was immense. Everything ever written was soon in flames. When it spoke, the tree had a roaring pitch. Each word it said sounded like a surge of lightning before it strikes. It wanted to tell Anton what the future had in store. Yet although the future could communicate so vividly, Anton couldn't bring himself to listen. He put his hands over his ears. He was too old for so much excitement. His spectacles had dropped to the floor. He didn't know what to think. Any attempt to engage his senses made him melt. The more the future orchestrated itself in flames, the more he was consumed by the disappearance of every book ever written, until there was nothing left to think anymore. In the end, there was only smoke and charred remains. Anton's face was mostly on the carpet. To support his weight, he rested his hands on the counter. The functionary was an expert with rubber bands. Single-handedly, without looking at what she was doing, she slipped six rubber bands over six bundles of crisp new euros. One after the other, the bundles were placed into the gaping end of a manila envelope. 
The expression the functionary was using to stare at Anton bore a mixed message. It indicated she knew the customer had become unwell, but wasn't prepared to broach that subject at the conclusion of such an unorthodox banking transaction. Anton was too embarrassed not to take the envelope. He shoved it into his overcoat and left the bank with his head tucked between his shoulders. It was still snowing. He went to the front of the building next door, where he thought the bespoke cartographers should have been. It wasn't even the Georgian consulate anymore. It was just an ordinary residence. To one side of the entrance there were nine doorbells. Each brass button had a tab alongside it, displaying the names of the occupants. Anton didn't recognize any of the names. For an instant, though, he was drawn to the person occupying the ninth floor flat, who went by the name of Vinctus Promontano. Arriving is a death. At last, it was Wednesday the 18th of February, 2019. This was the day that everything else happened. After a long silence, Anton tried to explain, again, how it might have been possible for him to withdraw 30,000 euros from the bank without intending to. He didn't feel confident telling his wife that he'd managed to do this the previous day. Taking a more restrictive approach to the truth, he suggested instead that such an act might be visited upon any unwitting person during an episode of catastrophic absent-mindedness. The time has come to introduce Anton's wife, Oksana Alexandrievna. The couple had been in love since 1975. Oksana was the expressionist in the family. Her lifelong commitment to painting in oils could be deduced by looking at her face. It wasn't only the colors smudged there over the high cheeks around the strong chin, daubed onto the compactness of her nose, and sometimes smeared over the fullness of her lips. It was the deep grooves that ran along Oksana's forehead, which some may have regarded as signs of inner turmoil. But Oksana was at peace and in good health. She could stand transfixed for hours. Her faith in God might be said to have molded her protectively, so that the worry of being alive had dried on her surfaces, leaving behind an active artist of 72 with plenty of silvery auburn hair. It was hard to tell if she was listening to her husband's hypothetical explanation about withdrawing so much money. Anton's use of the word catastrophic had been designed to elicit a degree of sympathy, but Oksana's normally rubbery features were stolid. Persevering with his theory of the truth, Anton reminded her that people lose awareness of what they're doing all the time. While the person afflicted may appear to be functioning normally, he said, during a typical episode of unaware activity, everything that person does is so stubbornly habitual, they can't remember what's happened afterwards. Among her many qualities, 
Oksana Alexandrievna had mastered being impervious. That's all most interesting, she said. Or it might have been, that's all most interesting. Either way, Anton sensed his wife was teasing. Because he was flustered, and because his left leg had gone numb, he shifted his backside too much to the right. This minor adjustment made Oksana purse her lips, indicating her disapproval. Anton recognized the gesture as one of a roster available to the long-suffering. He believed he knew every expression his wife had ever made. He could have created an inventory. Although it has to be said that in their 44 years together, Oksana's capacity to surprise had never ceased. Especially now she was no longer painting trees. Her devotion to the species was in itself astonishing. Since she was a girl, Oksana had painted little else. Year on year, images of this singular life form had steadily accumulated, as if the theory of evolution had taken up art. Stockpiled in their loft were thousands of images of trees. Whenever Anton let his gaze meander over the sheer size of this idea of a forest, it wasn't only the smell of petroleum products that made his eyes water. For Oksana, painting trees had become a sprawling insistence. It didn't make sense to him that her whole meaning as an artist should have ended so abruptly. But earlier that February, she'd amazed him by asking if she could paint him. This leap into portraiture was not something she could bring herself to explain. They both knew, though, that whatever had prompted it signaled a violent eruption taking place out of sight. On a practical level, it meant Anton's duty as a husband was to sit uncomfortably upright on an old rocking horse each Wednesday afternoon, dressed like Taras Bulba. Nor was there any point in asking Oksana why she'd elected to paint her husband after Gogol's fantasy of the Cossack spirit. Other than to claim that the rugged look suited him, she refused to discuss it. While the portrait was being worked on, she wouldn't even let Anton see it, which made him all the more curious. It hadn't escaped him that the subject and terrain his wife had chosen to set him in seemed very like that of the rubo he'd almost fallen into the previous day. He couldn't help dreaming of himself as that self-same rider emerging from the pinks and browns of those faraway peaks, glancing over his shoulder at something or someone across the canyon. There would have been a variety of reasons why Oksana should have wanted to portray her husband as a Cossack in the mountains. Fond memories of her father reading Pushkin's Captive of the Caucasus might have had a part to play. A romantic depiction of Anton's heroic but futile endeavors as a novelist springs to mind. I can think of many other reasons. But the real source for the portrait, I feel, was Anton's own desolation. Details of what was happening to him will have been revealed to Oksana late at night, in his half-awake mutterings. It seems to me that she was responding to the disordering of her husband's life in the only way she knew how, by conceiving of a painting that would not only take him to the cave he so often raved about, but one that would give him hope of finding his way out again, should he ever feel the need to go inside. Holding her brush delicately between her index finger and her thumb, 
she leaned towards her easel. Stop squirming. I'm not squirming. You're like a dog. I am perfectly still. Move your head where it was. My neck hurts. It's your head I worry about. Anton bit his tongue. The teasing was getting worse. If his spouse was prepared to be dismissive of the conjecture that absent-mindedness could lead to the accidental withdrawal of 30,000 euros, there was little point in talking to her about the priest he'd seen going up in flames at the time he was in the bank withdrawing all that money. To anyone who could look beyond the beard, Anton's panic would have been obvious. The alarm he felt was causing the muscles around his mouth to go rigid. It was changing the timbre of his voice. What was happening had turned his normally static experience of life into a vista of perpetual disintegration. Without warning, within a few days of encountering his muse, it seemed as if the logic of everything had been unshaped and replaced by dreamlike impressions of being human. While he hadn't been able to reveal his concerns to Oksana openly, Anton had remained rational enough to continue his handwritten journal of being cast out of the order of things. That sheaf of papers, hidden under his mattress, was still being added to nightly. It was full of the fears he had about what he might think of next, in case whatever he actually thought of suddenly materialized. It had accounts in it of how my return to Vienna might unfold, as well as many feverishly scrawled sketches of the cave entrance. No matter how far away I might have been, the disturbances in Anton's outlook would continue to have an impact on me. Each shock he sustained riding Otto in flames would be conveyed to me in subtle ways. With a fluidity I still think of as nightmarish, our memories became interchangeable. To begin with, it was as if the duality of our lives flew in a loop, with Anton leading us both in a mind-boggling spin. As I became more headstrong, I found myself looking for ways to reverse the flow so that I could have the upper hand. If he struggled to keep his thoughts still, it was because he had a feeling that the 18th of February might be an auspicious day. If he struggled to keep his body still, it was because there was an itch under his papaka. He tried ignoring it. He gritted his teeth. For a time, he was able to distract himself by recalling the encounter he'd had with the combustible priest. He hadn't written about this in his journal yet. The immersion had been too recent. Without changing his position on the rocking horse, he went over what had happened, starting with the rubo he'd seen and the rider in it, twisting his head to look over the canyon. Traipsing through the snow the previous day was something Anton could perfectly recall. Finding himself at the premises of the Consular General of Georgia was every bit as detailed in terms of the quality of the recollection. He didn't just remember seeing the rubo there, now he recalled pulling on the reins and his horse rearing up. Without knowing what he was looking for, he remembered training his eyes on the rocks across the canyon. These were like real memories. After that, the impossible priest had gone on to reveal himself. 
Anton remembered, trembling with fear then, and the living inferno of books, and how he'd been able to read a few sentences of his book, sentences he hadn't even written yet. The manila envelope with 30,000 euros was another stark memory, but it wasn't one he could fit in with the rest. The money hadn't just fallen out of the sky. It was as real as everything else that was happening. He'd checked with the bank. The withdrawal had been made the previous day. He remembered doing it. What Anton couldn't recall, sitting in Oksana's loft that afternoon, was where all the money had gone. Oksana's silence was like a mist. As she worked, it twisted up and out between the surfaces of hundreds of canvases visible to Anton from where he was sitting. They were stood out of order, sometimes dozens deep, leaning against the pitched walls, propped against the cupboards, and on either side of the trap door that led into the loft. Large and small, her paintings of trees had been hung edge to edge, fitted together like a collage along every cranny of the space. Each one offered its own idea of the silence of a forest, and generally put Anton in mind of the greatest silence he'd ever known. It was one that could never be spoken about. He'd traveled widely in the past, in search of trees for Oksana to paint. Out of those journeys came all her most flamboyant ideas of what a branching structure is. In the meantime, their lives had grown more pleasantly sedentary. Their last long trip together had happened a decade before when Anton came across a great kapok in the middle of the jungle. It had massive buttressed roots and woodpeckers living in it. Once Oksana had made her way around the tree, touching it every so often to get a sense of it, they went off for a stroll. They found the ruins of a temple. Hand in hand they climbed the steps. As they turned and looked over the canopy of trees, a sunset warmed their faces. It was on those steps that Anton experienced the bonding silence he still relied on, not to be compared with anything that might be said on any subject. In order to access the rocking horse each Wednesday afternoon, he had to pick his way through Oksana's figurative forest and remove a pistachio grove in the harsh Attican heat. This painting covered the only skylight in the loft. Whenever Anton was present, the skylight was the only spot where there were no paintings of trees. But the few streaks of sunlight thrown over his shoulders that day did nothing to lift the drear he felt. He didn't know what this feeling meant. As he sat in the saddle, waiting for his itch to go, all that could be heard above the strokes of his wife's brushwork was his own wheezy breathing. The urge to scratch made him want to wriggle. He knew he would have to attend to it very soon. He didn't dare shift his position yet, though, or let Oksana know that in the fullness of time he planned to remove the papaka and scratch his head. Oksana put down her brush and dabbed her palette with her fingers. The palette was smothered in scoops of violets and cyans over a base of fire brick red. 
She pointed the smudges on her middle finger and forefinger in the direction of Anton's lips on the canvas and made two decisive dabs. By way of distraction, Anton asked if she'd ever heard of an artist called Rubo. Franz Alexeyevich. You do know him, then? He did paintings people could walk into. How did he manage that? He made his paintings really big. So there was nothing else to see, I guess. Anton had begun to edge his hand upwards. He tried to think of how he might broach the subject of Rubo's painting of a rider in the Caucasus. After another moment, he asked, Was he French? I believe his parents were elegant, Oksana said. People could walk in his paintings for hours. They must have got lost in them, Anton replied. It was the time before moving pictures, she said. Ah, then it was people who moved, Anton concluded. As they finished each other's sentences, Oksana continued to smear her fingers around her version of Anton's mouth. Her voice had the same lullaby rhythm as her smile. If you listened for long enough, it made you drowsy. Anton was far from drowsy. Although this business about the rubo was puzzling, and he would have liked to know more, he was on the verge of executing his plan to itch his scalp. His right hand hovered near the apex of its ascent. All he had to do now was shove the papaka aside, while Oksana completed some pinpoint dabs on the turquoise detail of his lips. To be absolutely sure, he waited for the sound of the application of the next smears on the canvas. But Oksana sat up instead. She began to reminisce. During the 1880s, she began, her grandfather had been a successful photographer in Odessa. Anton knew this, of course. He was looking at her keenly. He'd heard the story many times. Nearly all of the daguerreotypes her grandfather had made were lost in 1917, she went on. Anton was nodding. His hand was ready to spring into action. Then his wife recalled that France Roubaud's father had been a bookseller in Odessa, and that her grandfather had bought many books from the artist's father. This detail had never been mentioned before. It was such a surprise that Anton forgot about his head. I happened to see one of Rubo's paintings, he said, suddenly wavering. Oh, when? 1882, I think. I mean, where? In the mountains. Did you get lost? There was a Cossack on a horse. There is always a Cossack on a horse. Probably to avoid whatever Anton wanted to say next, Oksana continued to reminisce. There had been hundreds of books on the shelves of her grandfather's study, she said. All of them were bound in leather or waxed card for the cheaper ones. The treasures of the collection had had their titles embossed in Cyrillic lettering on the covers. She'd grown up with goggles, grotesques, and Dostoevsky's demons, and recalled how she loved to handle the roughly shorn paper of those books, 
and how she could still feel the topsy-turvy typeset on her fingertips, even now. Anton reached for the rim of his papaka. Just as he flicked it up and to one side, Oksana said, Put your hand where it belongs. He obeyed with a groan. What's the matter with you? It's itchy under this hat. Think what a Cossack would think. I already have. I can assure you. Think what Rubo would think. I don't even know what Rubo looked like. He had a handsome face. You can't have been alive when Rubo was handsome. No, but I saw a daguerreotype, Oksana said. One of the last my grandfather made. You have the same droopy eyes, as if you were both about to fall asleep. It occurred to Anton that this was indeed how he imagined my eyes. He saw me as heavy-lidded and distant. It wouldn't always have been that way. We both knew this only too well. If someone had taken a photograph of me when I was young and still looking forward to my life, I would have appeared watchful and ready for anything, not droopy-eyed like Anton. We should remember, though, he was quite exhausted by then. The underlying conditions for his despondency had been present since his first forays into the unseen. Reality was no longer reliable. Although he was trying to make light of it, he'd never experienced such a total and disruptive loss. Move again and you'll spoil it, Oksana said. She didn't see the petulant face he was pulling. She'd been blind since she was twelve. Instead, she would have felt Anton's movements. Oksana had cultivated an exceptional sensitivity to whatever was happening and could visualize the slightest movements from the vibrations around her. She picked up her brush and dabbed it onto an area of her palette that had been premixed with splashes of topaz. How long do I have to keep doing this? Anton said. Until you learn to keep still. I can't possibly keep still. Of course you can. I can't even stay in one place, Anton said. Without being somewhere else, Oksana replied. How did you know that? He said. Before she went back to her painting, Oksana explained that the most critical thing about any portrait was the mouth. The mouth was the seat of the spoken word. She told Anton that the more he continued to operate his while she was attempting to capture what was essential about it, the longer the portrait would take. She dabbed her brush into a scoop of magenta. The selection may have been random, but the color would come to perfectly represent Anton's knotted lips. They were thrown into another long silence but Anton would find no pleasure in it. As with many of their silences that afternoon, this one was filled with the 30,000 euros he appeared to have misplaced. He tried to think of better ways to explain what might have become of the money, when out of the blue, Oksana evoked a private saying they used in moments of need. Leaving, she began. Anton replied at once, Vitality he said. Arriving, she said. Gratitude, he said. Those four words, said in that order, 
had a calming effect. The saying itself was magical. Because the couple had used it so often, it had become truncated over the years. In full it went, leaving is a life, it requires vitality, arriving is a death, it requires gratitude. Anton had always believed that the saying was from Oksana's religion, perhaps something chanted during the long mass. Oksana thought he was the one who had made it up, inspired perhaps by the circularities of life and death. Neither of them knew why their saying should have retained its importance for so long, and rarely thought about its meaning anymore. Oksana swirled her brush in a jar of murky water. As she did this, Anton slipped his pocket watch out of his tunic to peek at the time. She told him to sit up and straighten his papaka. Just then, he died. As he exhaled his last breath, his head tipped sideways. He didn't fall from the rocking horse. His body slumped back against the skylight. The direction of Oksana's gaze was still fixed on her image of him. She felt him move again, but she only sighed. How will I ever finish you? she asked. It was the loneliest place Anton could think of. All he could do was savor Oksana's question. He could hear her asking it, and he heard himself answering. I promise you, I will come back. He didn't think she'd heard him. He didn't know if he was coming or going. He decided if he was able to promise he would be back, he must be going. He wanted to reassure Oksana of his intentions, but she was no longer there. He could only see her as a memory. A specific quality she had, which he often thought of, was her humor. It was never quite complete. He remembered his wife's mouth, always on the cusp of a smile, as if everything might turn out to be funny in the end. He could hear her telling him to sit up and straighten his papaka. But he couldn't do that. He couldn't do anything anymore. Inside his head, it was like leaves in a squall. Everything moved in every direction. Within all that wildness, there was a lone, angry voice bellowing the chorus of my favorite things. Anton tugged the reins. He stared over his shoulder. He knew it was me. He decided then and there that I would probably want to shoot him dead. The pop that came whistling was the first discharge from my musket. It reverberated around the canyon. Another shot would ring out soon enough. If the second bullet struck home, Anton wouldn't even hear it. There was only time to throw himself out of the saddle. Despite his years, he performed this maneuver with the agility of a real Cossack. He found himself crouching behind Oksana's front left flank. Either he could retreat to a bend twenty paces up the ridge, or he could edge himself closer to the cave, twenty paces further down. Whether up or down, Heraclitus would have told him, it was all the same road. But Anton figured that must be wrong. He kept one hand on his saddle while the other one gripped the reins. Together, he and Oksana began to edge down towards the cave.
but each step forward was hesitant and quickly followed by a backward step, so that Anton didn't know who was leading who anymore. <laughs>